0: Jewish audio on Kavon.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Shar Avesatuma, the balance of the primary sources of impurity. Pesach Neimosar, Chapter Twelve, a very well-known chapter in Rambam. To give you a little bit of a background, there is a tractate in the Talmud, Mishnah Talmud, called Chagiga. It deals with, among other things, the visit that was required for the Jew to make to Jerusalem <coughs> on festivals, the associated sacrifices involved, Chagiga, Shalmeh Chagiga, Shalmei Simcha, the peace offerings of the festival of joy, and so on and so forth. In the midst of this tractate. There's a section which goes into laws of purity and impurity because of the purity and purity laws involving sacrifices. And one of the things we learn there in the Mishnah, and then the Gemara explains it in great detail, dealing with the fact that there are 11 decrees, 11 rules enacted by our sages, setting aside sacrifice food from all other foods, 11 more severe applications. And if we study the Gemara there, we see how this is phrased and how it is interpreted and how it evolves. And the Rambam does the amazing service for us of putting it in clear, concise, contained terms. And that's what this chapter is. The review of the eleven decrees of our sages pertaining to sacrifices. Aleph 1, achas esri mailas, eleven stringencies, also Chachamim, our sages made and enacted affecting sacrifice food, Al HaTrumah, over all of the stringencies that already existed in Trumah food. Trumah food has its, own, has its own stringencies. On top of the stringencies of Trumah, our sages enacted eleven more stringencies, strict application of practice concerning sacrifice food called Kodesh, holy food. The Elu and these are they, and the Rambam goes on to enumerate them. Numero uno, in general terms, when we have to go immerse a utensil in a mikveh, there's no reason we can't place a bunch of small utensils in a bigger utensil. Because it's difficult to handle a bunch of small utensils. So you take the utensils, you put them in the bigger utensils, and voila, as they say in French. That's permissible even in Truma purification. Said Our sages do not do that when it comes to utensils used for sacrifices. Our sages instituted a decree. Perhaps the opening of the larger vessel will be narrow. And it will not have the minimum required opening. What's the minimum required opening for laws of immersion? And my friends, there is an entire section we're going to learn about mikvah and about immersion. It's upcoming. Fear not. Perhaps the outer utensil is not as wide as the mouthpiece of a drinking pouch. They used to have drinking pouches that had mouthpieces. Perhaps it's not as wide as the mouthpiece of a drinking pouch. Calculated to be two breadths in diameter. If the opening is two breadths in diameter, it joins two bodies of water together. Similarly speaking, it joins water inside a vessel with a larger body of water. So we're concerned that one day, this larger vessel, today it might have a big enough opening, but one day it might not. So therefore, the smaller vessels in the larger vessel, where were they immersed? In the water in the larger vessel, not in mikvah water. Because the two waters don't really join. Because the opening might not be big enough one day. the Therefore, it will not be considered as if they were in the mikvah. So that's application decree number one. By the way, we talk about two fingers in the Kihot mish the chart. 0.79 inches is a finger. Four-fifths of an inch. So two fingers is about an inch and a half or so. No more when does this apply that this decree was enacted that when it comes to holy sacrifices one should not immerse utensils in a larger utensil because one day the opening may not be big enough if the large utensil, utensil in which the smaller ones were placed was a pure utensil so if it's a pure utensil were concerned that the smaller utensils will be immersed in its water rather than in the mikvah water however, if the larger utensil was also impure when it entered the mikveh. So you can only look at this one of two ways. If the mikveh purifies a larger utensil, then it purifies everything in it. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And we know it does. Mikesh also lets being that the immersion works for it, the larger vessel, also feel the kinship of Seke, then it'll also work for the vessels within it. For the utensils within it, I feel established by the even to use them for holy sacrifice activities. <coughs> so this is decree number one. To begin with, don't immerse small utensils in a larger utensil. When it comes to sacrifices. Bay's decree number two. We learned earlier that a utensil whose back, meaning not the interior of the utensil, but the side, the outside, was contaminated. With liquid, said our sages, that the interior will not be disqualified. And that was a halacha we learned earlier in chapter 7, halacha 3. Also, some of the utensils in their time used to have a finger hold on the rim, where the fingers can grab the rim, enabling the container to be held without inserting one's finger inside of it. You know, it's not uh, nice to put your finger inside a container, so they have like a little handle area. So that also does not become contaminated and therefore the liquids within it or in this handle area will become pure because it only touched the external part of this utensil and can go ahead and drink He's not concerned. perhaps the liquid in his mouth will touch the back of the utensil and then we'll come back and go in it so that's the halacha that we learned earlier that applies in general terms to everyday foods and to, tor- to everyday utensils and to truma utensils enactment number two is when does this apply in the world of truma or less but in the world of sacrifices if the back of the utensil becomes defiled, the whole utensil becomes defiled. This is the second of the 11 stringencies. Gimel, item number three, paragraph three. We learned earlier extensively that when a zov or associated categories, zov, zoba, nida, Yildiz, puts pressure on something that is used ordinarily to lie on or sit on or what have you, or write on, that object is called a migras, something that has supported the zov, and becomes impure. So that a migras of a zov, for example, a kach of a zov, or a smaller object belonging to Azov is impure now what if somebody takes that object and he places it on a large board let's take a contemporary terminology uh, he takes a big uh, what do I call those things you make the hookahs from a big <laughs> a big board plywood, a plywood board and he places the midros on one end of the plywood board why can't he put truma on the other end of the board of course he can why? because even though he's carrying the midros and that's a problem but the truma is not carrying the midros the truma is just sharing the board with the midros so as long as they don't touch it's not a problem because the person carrying this larger board megea doesn't touch me because touching would be a problem but, like, truma, Negea, and the truma doesn't touch the midras even though they're both on the same board it is pure however, This which exists in the world of truma will not exist in the world of sacrifices even though he doesn't touch it so this is stringency number three that an impure midras should not share a board surface with truma even though they're not anywhere close to each other in fact, there was a story with a person where he was carrying a barrel of holy food, like a barrel of wine to be used for libation. And he defiled it with the midras that he was carrying. At that time, they decreed that if somebody carries a Midrash, he should not carry the holy food. This decree was only enacted when it comes to Midrash, something which does not apply pressure to with holy food. Like the story we just shared. So this is enactment number three, not to have a Midrash and sacrifice food share a larger surface for the garments of people even though the Kohen maintains his garments in a strict state of purity and he's meticulously cautious not to defile not to defile his garments so what could be more pure than the garments of a Kohen for the purposes of sacrifice food our sages said even the Kohen's pure garments are considered impure like Midras why? because sacrifices require a greater state of purity so that would be if my calculation is correct enactment number 4 of 11 hey, next when you have a utensil or a piece of furniture that's made up of parts, component parts you ever go to a store, get all excited, you want to buy something gorgeous like a bicycle or a bed and then you come home and you have to spend the month putting it together a guy like me, it's a lifetime so if you have a utensil that's made up of parts and then it's bound or placed together with, I don't know what you going to need to like a bed you know, assembly not concluded or similar now, back then, utensils and beds were immersed in the mikvah. If it becomes defiled, you have to immerse it. For true purposes, there's a leniency. Our sages said, don't make yourself sugar You don't have to disassemble the bed. You just immerse it as is in the mikvah. There's a famous Mishnah, which we conclude every day. When we say, kadish, hitvil bo es amikvah. If he immerses the bed in the mikvah. Beds used to be observed in the mikvah. Yeshua, ilah, bilikul, ke'echer, can immerse it all as one piece. mikusha, while it's still bound and connected, Assembled. Ah, well, the Kodesh, but our sages enacted, I believe, stringency number five, matir he has to undo it, he has to disassemble it, wipe each of them down, shemayashom dovrachetz, perhaps there's some book which will be considered a separation, for example. Glue will be considered a chatzitza. You have to remove the glue. shemayashom dovrachetz, perhaps there's something that separates. Or be. he immerses it, he has to reassemble. Anyway, the, the glue was my comment. The Rambam doesn't talk about glue, he talks about stuff. Ruv, next stringency, kelim in bitar, In order to understand stringency number six, I have to give you a little bit of an introduction. We're coming upon a separate set of laws dealing with utensils. In a fitting way, it's called the laws of utensils. And it's big, long, and complicated. But one of the basic axioms is that a utensil cannot take on defilement until it's a utensil. If it's not really a utensil, then it's not yet ready to take on defilement. Then it's still a raw piece of material. So it's only when it's a complete, functional utensil that it can become defiled. Now he says when the utensil is completed and the last act is done and voila it is now a utensil that has to be done in a state of purity because that's the moment it could become impure whatever happened to it before doesn't interest us because it can't take on impurity even if the guy who on the assembly line the guy creating them is a great Torah scholar meticulously fluent in the laws of purity and impurity he's very careful still it's now a utensil immerse it before you use it for sacrifice why do I have to immerse it when could it have become impure it doesn't matter However, leniency—you don't have to wait till sunset. the truma, but for the purpose of truma kohen food, there isn't even a need to immerse, it, because if truth be told, there is no need to immerse. M'shtamish you could use it without immersion. Shari nasu Why? Because this was produced in a state of meticulous purity. It says I believe, enactment number six of eleven. When it comes to sacrifices, immerse it anyway. Now comes the question: Why would our sages? The that? Why would our sages require this? What could have happened? Zeta, our sages, issued a decree for the following scenario. Mishum Amor, it's the spittle, the saliva of an ignorant person who doesn't know the ins and outs of the laws of fury. Sheyig Abohan, who touched it, Mishas Malacha, while it was in the earlier state of production. We're really not concerned about that, because it wasn't yet a vessel. It can only become contaminated if it is a vessel. And we just said that the last act of production was done by a Torah scholar who is meticulously knowledgeable. What are we concerned about? That this bit of saliva, Badayan Hulach, maintained its moisture into the next step, Achash Enigma, after it became a vessel. Aha, this is now a vessel, and it has the saliva of someone who's not a scholar, which by Rabbinic decree will make it impure. So, this is the extra stringency, number six, I believe, enacted by our sages. Number seven, moving right along our clea, a utensil, a container, a bit saddle, a a Makes everything in it one entity when it comes to all these sacrifices. the for the purposes of truma, as long as there's a separation in this container between item A and item B, the two items do not mix. Kesod, for example, kli shumolay a container filled with fruits separated one from another. for example, raisins and dried figs. It's not the applesauce, but it's separate fruits. No g'chol and purity touches one of these things. Nech makol mashia for the purpose of sacrifices, the whole container becomes defiled. Abolei the truma, but not for truma. So this would be the next level. Now the Rambam says, although every one of these 11 decrees are rabbinic, but this particular one, which I think is decree number 7, has an illusion and a hint in the Torah. It says in the Torah, in the portion of the dedication of the princes of the achas one golden ladle of ten gold pieces, filled with incense, anything in the ladle is one, anything in the container becomes one. Furthermore, even if the container does not have an inside to contain things, it's flat, of It will also combine that which is on its flat surface for the purposes of sacrifices. You can show them, for example, these items, figs or, 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 or raisins were collected on a board or an animal hide which is flat. Even though they don't touch one another, but the fact that they are in the same container or on the same surface for the purposes of sacrifices, our sages decreed that they be impure. That, I believe, was decree number 7. Paragraph 8. What if these two piles of different foods were in the container? And then there's some other thing separating them. And one of the two becomes defiled. For example, he brings down here, that the container held an entire Isaron, a large measure of flour, half in one corner, half in the other, and in between the two halves, there was another entity, Sushi. You don't think that sushi in the time of the In English. If the object in between them needed the vessel, the example is, when you have flour for an offering, you must have frankincense with it. So if the object in the middle was a frankincense, then the utensil combines them all. And they all become impure. You touch one corner of the flower; the whole thing becomes impure. Because the frankincense is part of the presentation. It but if it doesn't need it, when possession, go back to Then only part of it becomes impure. Only the part that was touched. Now, continuing at number nine, how you What if there were two masses of something in a container? and mass number one, la'mayim is connected to water. behind the container. Behind the container, there's a source of liquid, and that is connected to part of the solid in the container. Now you have another mass on the other side of the container, and something impure touched it. The container combines both entities. Furthermore, the water also becomes defiled because it connects it. Even though it's at the back of this container, but if the impure matter touches the water behind the vessel, only the food connected to it becomes impure. We're actually unsure if the other food becomes defiled because the utensil container makes it one. Or not? Does not become defiled because of this combination. What if holy food, sacrifice food, became defiled, was placed in a container? In the same container, there is holy food, which is pure. But that's not a problem because they're not touching one another. Then the pure maintains its purity and the impure maintains its impurity as long as they don't mix. However, what if somebody who already immersed in the mikvah but the sun did not set yet touches it? What did he touch in this case? He touched the food that was already impure. Yes, we're really not sure. If the tsvuyayim would have touched, Regular food in bark, then it contaminates the whole thing. But here, he did not contribute to contaminating the food because it was already contaminated. Because the guy touched the contaminated side. But whether the combination of utensils makes it spread, a or not, what is the argument? Why not? Because in this case, the person who immersed in the mikvah but did not yet have the sunset, and that's why he's impure, only touched something that already was satiated with impurity. It was already impure. But didn't add anything. Why should it convey another level of impurity? Upcoming coming now to the eighth level level four in the world of sacrifices. derivative four, parcel is unfit. We learned earlier. Aba b'truma, but in level four of truma, we learned earlier, tire is perfectly pure. V'chenslishi level three in it touched liquid of level four, and is a becomes impure, kamech shubiano. As we learned, mashlishi b'truma, aish and level three within truma more holy imnogav b'mashk truma, if it touched truma, like so it does not make it impure. So what is this eighth level of stringency that if level three touches sacrifice food uh, liquid, it does make it impure? And this we kind of touched upon earlier. Okay. Yud days moving right along. Twelve. V'chadik the achas. If somebody's hand, only one hand, becomes defiled, the Naga, above the other hand, he touched the second hand, maybe would be on He touched his friend's hand, possible he defiles number two. He defiles the second hand, about a Hikishlishin, it becomes like a third level derivative. but if his hand was immersed in liquid, moist with liquid, Aba Pisherling, even though he doesn't touch it, was The second one still becomes, the second hand becomes impure because the liquid will carry it. he has to immerse both of them in a mikveh. And then he can touch all these things. We learned earlier that when it comes to holy, it's not enough to wash; one has to immerse one's hands in the mikvah. So that is another stringency when it comes to holy foods. Yudimol thirteen. dried food you have dried food that has never become readied to receive impurity. And the next set of laws that we're going to be learning are the laws of foods. One of the basic axioms of food is the following food has to have been exposed to liquid. Once it was severed or plucked from the ground, water or any of these seven liquids had to have on it. If food, for example, you have a bushel of tomatoes, they were just harvested, and from the moment of harvest, they never got wet, they cannot take on impurity. That's called the law of mukshar, ready the to receive tumah, impurity. I call them the go in dried foods like this bushel of tomatoes. Shaleh they were never ready to exposure to liquid since they were severed from the ground. Theoretically, there's no reason they cannot be eaten with impure hands because the hands will not contaminate the food. When does this apply? Bitruma in food. Why? Because the food was not Mukshar, It was not ready. Aval Bakedesh, but in sacrifice food, this is the next stringency. Chibas Machsharton. There's another aspect which readies them to receive impurity. What is that aspect? The fact that they are sacrifice food. That in and of itself, that importance, this is sacrifice food, is enough to make it ready to receive impurity. And therefore, we also, the Mishayot of Timaeus, it is forbidden for one who has impure hands, Lechel Kedesh, to eat, sacrifice food, even if it has not been exposed to liquid. even he only touched it with a spit. I should talk about somebody else put in his mouth, and he also will be forbidden Certainly she should not have tomorrow. Bah shall it is impure itself, touch holy food which have not yet been ready by exposure to liquid they did become impure. What? Why? This decree is that just the fact that it is a sacrifice makes it ready to take on impurity. you to disqualify the food itself, the tomato themselves. To be consumed, but it does not have enough potency where you start counting the derivative one the derivative two. And they says if it's actually in doubt as to whether it does or it doesn't. Case of for example, if food that was contaminated but was not ready by liquid was touched by derivative two, which was, a suffix, so we're not sure about this level two, because level one was never really prepared to become contaminated. Okay. of 15, owning someone who lost a close relative for whom he's required to mourn, like mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister. One must mourn in a very severe manner. Which means the time after the passing before the funeral. Or, by biblical law, the first period of time. On the day of the death. So, that state of aninos, of bereavement, brings about its own level of impurity. Or, someone who did not have to bring a sacrifice, who did not yet bring it, must immerse before eating of holy food. But not for truma. Why? Because a bereaved person, someone who did not yet bring a sacrifice, truma, may truma. But they may not engage in sacrifice consumption until they immerse. And this is, I believe, stringency number 10, 11. Why did our sages require another immersion? When did they become impure? Because when they were in a state of impurity, of bereavement, or when they were in a state of waiting for the sun to set, they could not eat holy food, so they didn't focus 100% on maintaining their holy status. Shemonik Mubein Leoder, perhaps, their lack of focus caused them to become defiled and they didn't even know about it. Therefore, just in case, immerse. they also might as well, this was only create. this stringency was only passed for eating, I'm going to give it, but not for touching, they give it my coaching, creeping through, they can touch. And here, in a PS that Amba points out in 16, Shesh Miles are exchanged the first six of the eleven stringencies. Shemonik Mubein applied both to holy food. Or everyday food that was made at the level of holiness. For example, it's somebody who always eats holy food. Everything he does, he produces at the level of holiness. But the last five of the 11, from whether the vessel combines two entities and onward, all of those, they only apply literally to sacrifice. Not to everyday food that was made with the stringency of offerings. But for these five, they're like when you have everyday food that was made with the stringency of holiness. The first is defiled. Becomes defiled by them. Vahasheni, the second apostle, becomes unusable, unfit, disqualified. Vahashlishi, and level three, Torah is completely pure. behold in everyday food. Kamesh, B'yarno, as be explained. End of chapter 12. Rambam, mishne Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Shar Avosatum, the balance of the major sources of impurity. Now we're learning in these chapters about a series of rabbinic laws, rabbinic decrees, which were instituted to safeguard the purity of people before they entered the holy temple or before they ate of sacrifice food. So you had rabbinic decree upon rabbinic decree upon rabbinic decree. And we learned earlier that garments become impure as well. What happens when garments become impure because they were exposed to a source of impurity? The garments have to be immersed in the mikvah. Back then they immersed everything in the mikvah. So before you could bring a sacrifice, you have to immerse in the mikvah. Your garments have to be immersed in the mikvah and so on and so forth. So today's chapter begins with the laws of garments and the decrees our rabbis applied to the laws of purity of garments. also b'godim Five categories of decrees, or five categories, five steps, in the purity and impurity of garments were ordained. And these are they. Now we learned many of these laws before. The first thing we learned is that the laws of purity and impurity are so complex that unless someone was considered a purity-impurity scholar, he simply could not keep up with it. And therefore they actually licensed people. And they said, you are considered a purity-impurity scholar. And the word for this was porush. This brought about the English word that people are very familiar with, Pharisees, which refer to the rabbis. That comes from the word perushim. What does a porush mean? Separated, who knows how to maintain laws of purity and impurity. So therefore, the garments of regular people, they amihoreth, the laws of people who engage in earth, earthly activity, worldly people, midras is considered a garment that became impure through pressure, meaning if somebody would sit on it, or sleep on it, or lean on it, or stand on it, for anybody who eats their everyday food in a state of purity, (coughs) meaning there were scholars who ate everything and did everything in a state of purity, which again, not an easy thing to do. Not only did they maintain purity when they went to offer a sacrifice, (coughs) but they maintained purity all the time. Therefore, a garment belonging to an everyday person will present a problem, because surely (coughs) we can safely assume that this garment became defiled. The same also on the The regular people as well themselves, kizavim, the harlots are considered like as if they are impure for the purposes of purity. Can be We explain. So if anybody is exposed to a regular person, he has to assume he's impure. So what's the big deal? There's no big deal. You have to go to the mikvah. You have to immerse in the make until the sun sets as we explain then you have the garments of those who eat their everyday food in a state of purity Midras is considered as if it's an impure garment upon which pressure was put by an impure person for those who eat the second tie, the second tithe is 10% of the produce that had to be brought by the farmer to Jerusalem when he came to Jerusalem he had to immerse in a and be in a special state of purity so the previous purity is not good enough but those who maintained the purity of eating their everyday food in a state of purity, these are the ones who are called the Purushim, those scholars who undertook to really meticulously study and observe the laws of purity and impurity, they are not considered as a source of impurity. Even for the purposes of the Kohen's food called this Purush, this scholar who undertook to maintain the meticulous laws of purity and impurity, he's considered pure. Even if he touched it with his body, the garments of those who even ate of the second tithe in Jerusalem a higher level of purity Mithras is considered has to be assumed as, a, as an impure garment for those who will eat Truma which means compared to a Kohen the Kohen's sanctity is of a higher level so before the Kohen eats the Truma he has to make sure if he was exposed to these garments then he has to immerse in a mikvah that's why people immerse in the mikvah all the time I, I repeated many times when I had the great privilege to be with my dad my father of blessed memory in Jerusalem he showed me we took a tour around Jerusalem he said look every house has a mikvah because before people did anything they went to the mikvah." the garments of those who would eat truma which is a very sacred level Midrash is considered as impure for anybody who indulges in sacrifices for anybody who's going to eat a sacrifice or enter the holy temple why? because that's a higher level of purity but not the people themselves are not considered as sources of impurity for even sacrifice experience the garments of those who are fit to eat and consume sacrifices would be considered as a source of impurity for the ritual of the red heifer which we learned in great detail that our sages added decree upon decree for the sanctity of the ritual of the red heifer as we explained anyone who is in a state of purity for the purposes of sacrifices is not considered as a source of impurity even for the red heifer so that's paragraph 1 paragraph 2 this is interesting our sages also in various levels when it comes to immersing in a mikvah it's not just you did immerse or you didn't immerse immersing in a mikvah is also an experience what's the experience? there has to be kavana. there has to be focus and intent when you go into a mikvah you have to have focus you're purifying yourself it is said that the word t'vila has the letters of betul, nullification what is the idea when we put our head and our entire body even our head under the water that our head is the source of our intellect we are nullifying our intellect to Hashem so unless we focus and say we're going to the mikveh for the reason of becoming pure we're nullifying even our great understanding to Hashem then it doesn't count but we have to focus for the purpose of the particular event we are purifying ourselves for. If somebody immerses without focus and intent he is pure only for everyday food We also but he may not have second tithe which can only be eaten in the state of holiness in Jerusalem Actually, until his focus and intent will be that when he's immersing he's going to eat the second tithe in Jerusalem which means it's a different focus. And if he has in mind to immerse for the purpose of eating the second tithe in Jerusalem, and said, He's only considered pure for that purpose. We also have truma, but if he's a he now wants to indulge in truma. That's a different level, and it needs a different focus in immersion. And if he didn't focus and think about eating truma while he was immersing, it doesn't count. If he thinks of truma while he's immersing, now he's established as pure for the purpose of truma. We also have a kodesh, but he's forbidden to engage in sacrifices because he didn't have in mind offering a sacrifice or eating of a sacrifice. What if, when he immersed, he had in mind a the sacrifice, then he's established as pure for the purposes of sacrifices? We also look but he still may not take any part in the preparation of the red heifer. But if, when he immersed in the mikvah, he had in mind the red heifer procedure, is now established as pure for everything, because the holier the level, it covers all the lower levels. One who immerses for a more severe purpose, was established as pure for a lesser or more lenient purpose. What if the guy just immersed in the mikvah, he wasn't thinking anything, he was just thinking, oh, it's cold. We had none of the above in mind. He's pure only for everyday food. And he remains impure, as he was before the immersion, even for the lowest level of holiness, which is second time. We learned earlier about the rabbinic decree of hands. That being that people's hands are all over the place, hands were decreed to be impure. So if somebody immerses his hands in the mikvah, he literally washes his hands, depending upon the particular issue, he needs focus when he washes or immerses his hand, even for second when tithe. And from second tide and higher, he needs focus. But for everyday food, ain't he? he does not need focus. I want you to know that all of these levels, these are all rabbinic decrees. As long as he immersed, he is considered 100% pure for all things. These decrees are only rabbinic decrees three truma. Somebody was considered pure for the purposes of eating truma, kohen, kohen food. We see and he stopped focusing. He says, Okay, I'm done eating. Now I'm gonna read the, the LA times. I'm gonna do something else. The fact that he's not concentrating on remaining in a state of purity, it takes one hundred percent focus to remain pure, otherwise life makes you impure. The fact that he lost his focus, we have to now assume that he's not pure anymore. We also may not eat more truma, actually eat popping until he verses a second time. However, because this is such a severity, in ordinance, head of does not to wait for the because it's not that. Traditional of a rule, it's a extra rabbinic decree. How do you got to cover the His <laughs> hands were pure for the purpose of eating bruma. You see, he lost his focus from keeping his hands pure. You know, you got to keep your hands pure. Everything around you is impure. That's why it's so difficult to maintain these laws. Ah, Papisha Shemir, even though he says, listen, even though I was doing something, I was, you know, I was having sushi. Ye'be'ani, I know shalaynit and My hands did not become defiled. How you to tameis? That's it doesn't matter. Being that he lost his focus from doing what he was doing, we have to assume that his hands are impure. He has to wash them again. We learned earlier why in askonias because hands go all over the place. The expression here is people's hands are very busy. You try and track people's hands; your computer will get exhausted. Im This is the fact for truma for kohen food. much more. So the for sacrifice food. da. The the Anybody who loses his focus must again immerse in a which again is no big deal because there were mikvahs all over the place, and a person immerses and had the right thing in mind. Now, what if a person did not focus in keeping away from exposure to death, which we learned earlier in great detail, requires the purity on the third and seventh day from the red heifer mixture? All he can say is, I don't know if I became defiled or not, exposed to death. I may have gone into a building which had a corpse in it. I don't know. By the way, today you walk into a hospital; most hospitals have morgues. As long as he doesn't know for sure that he was not defiled, He has to go through the sprinkling of the ritual of the red heifer on day 3 and day 7 of his purity count. Why? Simply because because he lost focus. He can't 100% say that he's pure. But if he can say that, and he just did not focus on everything else, then he has to immerse himself and has to wait for the sun to set, even for the act of eating truma, calling food, and I'm again. One thing is for sure, all of these repeat immersions are enacted by rabbinic law by torah law they're not necessary dalit 4 continuing in rabbinic decrees which is what this chapter is about so also our sage's decree ala regarding vessels utensils what if you're walking down the street and you find a fork you find a bowl you find stuff you could use you find a toaster in streets and alleys I feel a bit more even in the desert is this pure or is it impure because utensils become impure we are about to enter into a long complex section called utensils tumah utensils have to be assumed that they are that they're impure why because an impure person touched them Maybe, became, maybe they became defiled with someone with an abnormal sexual issue, which we learned about earlier in great detail, or through exposure to human corpse. Also, we learned about body fluids. When you walk down the street, anywhere, and you find spittle, you find somebody spit. You find human mucus. the Saliva. You have to assume that that saliva may have emanated from someone whose saliva is impure. Maybe this saliva emanates from the person who is zov. We talked earlier than in the commentary of this particular Rambam that we're using, this translation of the which is also the source for the Hayenu, he interprets Zov as being similar to today's gonorrhea. It's an abnormality. It's a problem. But in the Torah we talk about it from a perspective of purity and impurity. Okay, so that you see the spittle, you see the saliva, you have to assume that it may have come from someone who has an issue. Hey, call any utensil which is found in Jerusalem, and we learned this earlier extensively. Jerusalem was a holy city, and so the rabbinic decrees were much less. To hate them are assumed to be pure, because most people, scholar or not, we assume that they purified themselves before they came to Jerusalem. They're coming to offer sacrifices. Surely they're pure, surely they're meticulously observant. Even the ignorant people were taught by their teachers what to do. A few of the believe even if we find the utensil on the way down to a mikvah, maybe the utensil was dropped by the guy who was carrying it to immerse it. No, we're going to assume it's in Jerusalem, it's pure. goes to and The sages did not issue decrees for any utensils found in Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem. The assumption is it's pure. The exception is if you find a knife, and you want to use a knife to slaughter a sacrifice. Ah, you want to use a knife on a sacrifice? If they maybe you should immerse it first in the nip again. Because of the severity of the sanctity required for sacrifice. But what am I wanted to supply? if we are talking about a knife, and which was found walking down the street in Jerusalem all year round. Ah, but but if you found a knife on the ground in Jerusalem on a special day, what's a special day like Cinco de Mayo? Not just kidding. The Arba the fourteenth of Nisan, what was the busiest day in Jerusalem? the Paschal sacrifice. It was traffic like you've never seen any knife found in Jerusalem on ere Pesach you could use it immediately because everyone is assumed to be there for one purpose slaughtering the Paschal sacrifice even if the 14th of Nisan ere Pesach which by the way it's interesting to point out that the 14th of Nisan is the birthday of the Rambo even if it comes out on Shabbos where slaughtering something that was not kosher which would be impure would be a violation of Shabbos you're allowed to slaughter something if it's pure if it's required like the Paschal sacrifice but if it's going to become defiled then you're not allowed to violate Shabbos even on Shabbos, you're allowed to assume this knife is pure. Our sages did not issue any decree for all knives that were found on this day. Heineh, Matzah, so also be bound on a vessel Shechet, can immediately use it for slaughter. because the assumption that all vessels are pure exists on the Yantib as well. Excuse me one second, I'm just going to hydrate a little bit. We are up to six. Matzah, this is a very interesting one. Matzah, what if the guy's walking down the street in Jerusalem and he finds a knife on the 13th day of Nisan, the day before the Paschal sacrifice. If he finds it on the day of the Paschal sacrifice, we assume it's all good, go use it. But what if it's the day before? So we have to accept some stringencies upon us. Number one, we have to assume maybe this knife was exposed to death. Maybe the knife was at a funeral. Maybe it was in a room with a corpse. Maybe the guy started the procedure of purifying it by sprinkling the sprinklings of the red heifer on day three. Maybe this was day seven. That's a lot of babies. But just in case, let's assume it's day seven. Mazerlea, go sprinkle the sprinkling application of the red heifer it's day (coughs) 7 and then it needs to be immersed in the mikvah and now we could use it the next day which means we're taking an extra stringency assuming maybe this needed to be sprinkled with the sprinklings of the red heifer on day 7 why did our sages assume that because it's very logical that somebody was preparing to slaughter it so therefore this could have been day 7 what if he found a knife bound or attached to a knife that he knew he knew the particular knife to be pure or he knew the particular knife to be impure and there was another knife attached to it Maybe on to whether it's the festival. Maybe Shah Yom or any other day, and a the night he doesn't know, takes on the same law as the night he does know. In Kahida if it's pure, payous or it's pure. In if it's impure, Klee is impure. Has called a rook arookin, and trying to shrive and Somebody finds that somebody spit. Saliva drops of saliva, which is again a great source of impurity from an impure person. I think in Singapore they are respected for doing that. Any saliva found in Jerusalem, the Msad in the middle of the road. Our sages decreed that they should be considered impure like any other saliva found anywhere. We have to assume saliva is impure. However, any saliva found on the side of the road in Jerusalem to hate are pure. Why? Because a custom developed where the Pirushim, the scholars who would maintain absolute ritual purity, would always walk on the sides of the road because they wouldn't want to walk where the high traffic area was. They went in the carpool lane. It's the Pharisees, the scholars who walked on the sides. So therefore you find... So, live on the side, it must be from a Pharisee. We have to assume it's pure. Conditionally, is dumb, but Magamars, because he was concerned not to interact by touching a person who's not particularly pure. That's all year round. But during the festival season, the opposite is true. Because during the festival season, the main traffic was in the middle of the road. Everybody was going to offer sacrifices. We can assume that the middle of the road is pure. We learned earlier that every Jew was considered. And assumed to be pure on the festival, but that which was off the side of the road, because that's where the guys who were impure went. The opposite was true in the high season. it's impure. Because those who are impure in the festival season are very, are very much a minority. During the season, they will go off on the side of the it's like Miami it's a season and the non-season now that Ambon tells us we learned extensively earlier and we will learn later about the various gradations in impurity remember we learned that there is the Avatumo, the primary source and then there is that which emanates from the primary source which is level 1 level 2 level 3 level 4 and, level five, we learned about these various levels, and we learned all the properties of these levels. So now that Anbam says, here, another rabbinic ordinance, just as, as a rule, level one derivative creates level two derivative, which means if something is level one, touches something that's level two, or touches anything that becomes level two, and that level two touches something, it becomes level three, gets weaker and weaker. Okay, so also, when there's a doubt as to whether something is derivative one or not, it creates sophic shenny, a doubt of level two. With sophic and doubt level two, shlishi creates doubt level three, which means just as level one leads to level two, and level two leads to level three, doubtful level one leads to doubtful level two, etc. Yud, Truma, Kohen food, holy food, the Kodoshman sacrifice food. Shenitma, which became defiled, this topic of may where we're doubtful as to whether it did or did not become exposed to a serious biblical source of impurity. The question is, is it did it touch it or it didn't touch, it? but if it did, it's for sure impure. This Truma and this sacrifice should actually be burned. Even though we learned as a rule that you don't burn things that are doubtful. But here, being that it's biblically doubtful, we do. What would be the doubt? Did he touch it or did he not touch it? If he did, it's for sure defiled. You're And There are doubts for which one should not cause the truma or the sacrifice to be burned. Neither should one eat it. When one is unsure, it's kept in suspense. It's like accounting, there's a suspense column. What does suspense mean? Like, you don't eat it, but you don't burn it. You wait until it really becomes defiled, and then you can burn it. The Esham fake, is that there are other doubtful situations, that you do burn coined food even though ordinarily it's a very big sin, a transgression to burn coined food, it's wasting it. It's certainly sacrifice food. But if there's a doubt within a doubt, a double doubt of impurity, which means maybe I touched it, maybe I didn't touch it, and maybe it's defiled, and maybe it's not. That's called a double doubt. And a double doubt. We never burn kohen food because it's holy. Ain't kohen makashim certainly not sacrifices. it's always in suspense. We don't need it. But we don't burn it. You'd Paragraph thirteen, the final paragraph in this chapter says that There are six scenarios of doubt when we do burn the truma, the kohen food. The kulam and every one of these six scenarios zayda are a decree, a dibreya, of rabbinic source. these are they. What's a basapras? We learned this in great detail earlier. There was a corpse in a field, and somebody unknowingly went and plowed the field. We're concerned that the corpse which we cannot locate was plowed. So maybe there are little pieces of human bone strewn all over the field. And maybe we will touch something that's big enough in the pile. That's called a base of a field where human remains were strewn, maybe. Because human remains are so severe in their level of impurity, if we're not sure, because in a base of we're never sure, we still burn the trumah. Earlier we learned about a rabbinic decree that any soil, any earth that comes from the land of the nations, which means you import soil from anywhere, let's say from uh, Pasadena, from anywhere, you have to assume that the soil is impure. If you find vessels, you find utensils, we learned earlier we have to assume they're impure. If you find saliva, we learned earlier we have to assume they're impure. And now we learned this extensively earlier that one of the human body fluids of an impure person, all body fluids of an impure person are impure. That includes saliva, blood, and even urine. The urine of an impure person is for sure impure. What's the doubt here? The urine of an impure person became mixed up with animal urine. Animal urine is not impure. And we don't know if it's nullified or not and how would we measure the nullification if it was different colors for example if blood gets mixed up with water those are different colors blood is red and water is clear so the color will determine whether it's more blood or more water here we imagine if the volume would have been a different color would it have changed the color you need to have a good imagination, but how is it if it is more human blood from an impure person than animal? I'm sorry, more human urine than animal urine. It's sorted, then it should be burnt. Hell, whatever it was exposed should be burnt, Hell, uva da isvakes elu to go to outside. Why are we saying that we should burn truma, kohen food or sacrifice food when we're not sure? All of the above are doubtful because if not for the doubt of did it touch it or didn't it touch it, if it had touched it, it's 100% biblically impure. Even though we really don't know if he touched it or It Harizo Tsarit should still be burned, because if it did touch it, it's a serious source of biblical impurity. Hell, Uvadi, spake a loot to most not there because a scenario of certainty would for sure be considered impure biblically. That's because of human corpse, Bazaar or someone who has an abnormal sexual flow. To me and the unteller, these people are biblically impure. Whether Truma touched one of the above six scenarios, or it became impure because of one of them, that is a max man, becomes derivative of level three. But if he's unsure in any situation, he no goddess. Maybe it did touch the field in which the corpse has been plowed, and maybe not. Maybe it touched the soil from the lands of the nations. Maybe it didn't. Leinogah. If nogah be god, they were naked. They Did it touch the garments? Did it touch the urine? Did it touch the saliva or not? So we have a double doubt here. Are leinogah? This is in suspense. To mosam now something because the entire existence of the impurity is doubtful. Shemitzayim. Perhaps they are or they're not. Shemitzayim. If you say they are impure, shemanogah shavaleinogah. Perhaps he did touch it or he didn't touch it. When imtsur shnei smekus, whenever there is a rabbinic law, whenever there are two doubts, double doubt should not be burned, double doubt truma or sacrificed. We don't burn holy food. Al shnei because of the double doubt. Al we always keep it in suspense. Let it become truly impure. Kameshah beyond. As we explained earlier. End of chapter thirteen. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais, the laws of, Sha'ar, Abay Satuma, the balance of the primary sources of impurity. And the chapter we're about to learn, chapter 14, as well as the following chapter, chapter 15, are based on the following premise. As we've learned extensively, there are some laws involving purity and impurity, which are Torah-based, biblical laws. There are many laws which are rabbinic decrees. Gzairos, decrees, ordinances, Midrabonon, fixed, created, decreed by our sages, for various reasons. Torah law has one strength in the practice of Torah, rabbinic law, although one must be meticulous with its observance, has a lesser potency because it's rabbinic law, not Torah law. Now the question is, what if one is uncertain? What if one is unsure? What if one is doubtful? Whether something occurred or not, whether something is or not, and as we go through life there are doubts every day. Did I or didn't I? Is it or isn't it? So the premise in halacha is, when the doubt is a doubt involving a Torah or biblical law, we have to take the more severe approach. When the doubt is a doubt involving a rabbinic law, we can take the more lenient approach. And that is the premise of the chapter and chapters we are about to learn. Pedeq Arba chapter 14, says in Amba Malachah 1, and of course all of this is based on the Mishnah and the Talmud, there are 12 cases of doubt, and as we will learn, because they are based in rabbinic law, our sages said, this scenario results in a decision of pure, not impure. Had they been biblical law, they might very well have been decided as impure. But because they are doubts involving rabbinic law, they are considered or pure. Now first, the Rambam gives a list. <coughs> Following the list, over the next two chapters, paragraph by paragraph, we will define the items in the list. The hayin, and these are these twelve items. Item number one, or A, Sofek, Mayim She'ubim the Mikva. We learned earlier that a mikvah must flow out of natural water, rainwater and the like. What if we draw water in a container and put it in a cistern, in a pit, in a pool? That's called Mayim Shuubim drawn water. So if there is a doubt concerning details of drawn water in the mikvah, the whole idea of the fact that three lugin, that three measures of drawn water can invalidate a mikvah, is a rabbinic decree. When there's a doubt, the decision is pure. The next item, sophic, tumot, a doubt concerning a matter of impurity, such as a carcass of a rodent floating on the water. And as we will learn... The Torah tells us... the ...any creepy crawly rodent type thing... ...which will swarm on the earth... ...because the Torah says swarm on the earth... ...we learn from this... ...but if it swarms on the water... ...if it floats on the water... ...it has a leniency... ...and therefore when that is doubtful... ...there is a lenient approach... ...safik mashkin... ...a doubt with regard to impure liquids... <clears throat> ...the whole idea of liquids becoming impure... ...in many cases is a rabbinic decree... ...and therefore when there is a doubt... ...the doubt becomes pure... That is the whole idea of liquids making other things impure is a rabbinic decree. But then becoming impure, they become impure. To make misafik, then the doubt is also impure. And again, we're going to learn all the details. Um, this is a summary. Misafik We learned earlier that there's a rabbinic decree about hands, that being that yadayim. Asconius saying, being that, being that, being that, being that hands are all over the place, there's a greater level of impurity that was ordained by our sages regarding hands, and that's why we have to do nitiyat wash our hands for t'rumah today for everything, nitiyat yadayim in the for sacrifices. So whenever there's a question of hands, being impure or not, or conveying impurity or not, whether we're talking about the impurity of the hands themselves, or conveying the impurity to the next item on the list, or we're talking about the hands becoming now pure, returning to a state of purity. The next thing is, any doubt considering, concerning anything having to do with degree Suffic decree, any doubt concerning ordinary foods, because we learned earlier many times that there were people who just to be meticulously careful would prepare even their ordinary food on a level of stringency of truma. So if a doubt happened with everyday ordinary food, Suffic carbones, a doubt concerning sacrifices that are required to be brought. Suffic negoyim, a doubt concerning leprosy, plagues. Suffic eber, the aimate, a doubt concerning when a person afflicted with leprosy stood still or passed and we will learn these details suffolk, him, a doubt concerning the carcass of a creepy crawly thing suffolk, harabim, a doubt that arose in a public domain and as we will learn in great detail the halachas are radically different when anything involving a doubt of impurity arises in a private domain that's one set of laws in a public domain it's a whole different set of laws and finally suffolk, the doubt concerning two domains details to come Paragraph 2 starts with the details. What do we mean in item number 1? We listed a doubt concerning water that was drawn in a container. We know that by rabbinic law, three lugin of drawn water in a container, which then fell into a mikvah. What is a lug? According to the measures in the kohat Chumash, 11.63 ounces. Three of those, three lugin, fell into a mikvah, like 35 ounces. So according to rabbinic law, it makes the mikvah unfit because it's not natural water, it's drawn water. What's the minimum? Three lugin, three times 11.63 ounces. However, that is if we know for sure that three Lugan of drawn water fell into a mikvah. But what if Safik Naflu, Safik Lugan Naflu? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. We're not sure. But Filan Naflu, even if for sure it fell into the mikvah. Safik Hajbam maybe there were three Lugan, maybe there was two and a half Lugan, which is not enough. So the halakha is, that being this is a rabbinic decree, Sveke taller. the doubt makes it pure. Bahare mikvah and this mikvah, which may in fact be impure, the halacha is it's pure. <coughs> because we're not sure, we're not certain. Does that mean we can just go use the mikveh like there was never a problem? Absolutely not. We don't instruct the person to go immerse in this is To create purity by this immersion to begin with? No. What we say is just in case, fix it. However, we told also, what if he already did? He immersed and he did. Now, do we have a reality problem or not? The answer is to up to us anything that because of the immersion of this mikveh, was pronounced pure will be maintained halakhically as pure. That's the first application of this list of items. Next list. This is a very interesting one. At least I think so. And we know that a source of impurity such as a rodent, uh, dead mile, a dead mile, a mouse, like Mickey. It's a source of impurity. There's no choice about it. What if you find a mouse, or as many say, a rat, floating down the river? Sophic what if there's a doubt as to whether this source of impurity? Sopho is floating. Apne on the water, meaning, of course it's there, it's floating. You see it floating. The question is, you touched it or you didn't touch it, that's the doubt. Kesar, what's the deal here? What's the scenario? So the Rambam gives us details. Sherets, a creepy, crawly thing of a rodent, show which was floating on the water. You know the old joke, the guy says, waiter, what's this fly doing in my soup? The waiter says, a backstroke whether this water was in a container in a bath in a cistern or it was in the ground and a person goes into that body of water and there's a rodent floating in that body of water what's the issue with a rodent floating? so as I said briefly there is a verse that tells us that a crawling animal which crawls on the earth this teaches us that if it's not crawling on the earth it's not quite a so therefore by Torah law being that it's floating on the water and not crawling on the earth there's a tremendous leniency nevertheless our sages said ah, consider it impure anyway so here we have a situation where this is floating on the water, it's not fixed on the ground, doesn't have the biblical strength. The the person went into that water, so now there's person and creepy crawly rodent in the water. Let's assume even it's tight, even if there isn't too much space between the person and the rodent, it's kind of tight in there. We're going to have to safely assume that they touched each other, which is certainly a way of becoming defiled, but being that he doesn't know for sure that there was any contact. This is considered pure. To their certain knowledge that there was physical contact between the person and the Sheretz. Now, does this apply to any and every source of impurity? Absolutely not. This rule of a floating source of impurity, its doubt being pure only applies to the category called Sheretz, the creepy crawly rodent category, which is a much more lenient form of impurity in the laws of impurity. In other words, but if you're talking about other sources of impurity, if you have a carcass of an animal, if you have a human corpse floating down the water, or a piece of it, that's certainly a much more severe application. Now the Rambam ends paragraph 3 by saying, What if something is being suspended over the water? You have a person who's suspending this, this creepy crawly thing, from over the water onto the water. You have another person who goes into the water. Or you have something that's being dragged on the water. Says the Rambam, we're not talking about suspended by a person, we're not talking about dragged by a person, because these are considered grounded. We're talking about free-floating. If it's not free-floating, it doesn't include, it's not included in this law. Next case, Dalit, some details, Sheretz, a rodent, creep creepy-crawly thing, which was in a utensil. The Sheretz, the rodent, is in a container, and the container is floating down the water. So the difference here is, earlier, the Sheretz was in the water, directly floating, and here it's floating in a container in the water. A, or another example would be, there is a human corpse, and then the rodent is sitting on the human corpse, getting a free ride. Or an animal carcass. is taking all of these scenarios from questions and answers in the Gemara. Or even if the carcass had become disintegrated and the flesh of the corpse is under it, so you have something under the sherets. As we learned earlier, a very great source of impurity is human semen. What if this was laying on semen, floating down the water? All of the above impurities are considered grounded, and therefore this lenient application does not apply. Because all of these, when we have a doubt, what's the doubt here? Did the person touch it or did he not touch it? These are all defined in the more severe application of impure permission as we will yet explain, because we have not even scratched the surface a private domain and public domain impurities. What if there was a rodent on top of a rodent piggybacked, flowing down the water? So you have a mouse on a mouse, a dead mouse on a dead mouse, double decker mouse. What's the deal? Is this considered free floating or is it considered grounded? Says that I'm from the order law, this is considered like one thick rodent, so it is free-floating. And if there's a doubt as to whether a person touched it or not, he is deemed pure. We learned earlier extensively that one of the sources of impurity is the mixture of red heifer water, that which purifies the person who was exposed to the death. Mechatos, That is a great source of impurity when it's not being used in the performance of its purpose. Mechatos, So the rodent is sitting on a body of... Red heifer water. I guess you can tell it's a little bit different because it has the ashes in it. And the red heifer water is flowing on the water. Here we're really unsure. or Therefore, get all It appears to me, and this is one of the expressions of the Rambam, where this is the Rambam's own opinion, that its situation of doubt is in fact considered pure. Again, it's a rabbinic situation. We're not sure. Go lenient. Now the Rambam says, just as our sages decreed purity for a doubtful source of impurity, meaning rodent. Floating upon the water, being became whether in a utensil, being the or free flow. I'm sorry, whether the water is in a utensil or the water is in the earth, a natural cistern or an a artificial cistern. and the So also our sages decreed that a doubt of purity, floating on water in a vessel or in the ground, is also pure. Now this sounds awfully similar. What's the difference? So he spells it out now. Ketzad, what do we mean? The scenario here is you have an eating trough, something that you need. Do in it's a utensil which we know for sure has been exposed to death, and therefore it is impure. That's not even a question. There is a loaf of bread of truma, Kohen bread, which was wrapped either in what he calls a sieve, which is tree bass, like something that grows on a tree, or a piece of paper wrapped, the loaf of bread, so that the sieve, or denir the paper, or this bark from the tree, is protecting the Kohen's bread from the impurity of the kneading trough. So you have impure kneading trough, Kohen bread sitting wrapped in paper. Like, uh, I don't know if they make it anymore when I was a kid. Wax paper was very big. If you're old enough to remember wax paper. And then the plot thickens. Rainwater drip drops into it. And this this needing trough becomes filled with water. So it's clear that being that this utensil is impure, now the water is impure. Now what happened was the piece of paper became flat. And is floating flat. So now this bread of Truma is now floating on the water, but it's not touching the water. Because if it was touching the water, it would be impure. And the paper, this piece of paper... Mabdil separates between the bread and the water. So really, the bread, the going bread is floating on the wax paper, on the tree bark, which is floating on the water. The water is clearly impure. The trough is impure. We're just not sure if the edge of the bread touched this utensil or not. That's the doubt. It remains pure. Why? <coughs> because, remember, we established the axiom of floating. The bay shoots so up because it's floating on the water. And the Torah says, floating, uh, crawling, swarming on the earth. So this is included in that floating on the water idea. Vol. 6. Here's another scenario where you have a situation where there's a wine press and then you have the cistern in the wine press that collects the wine. Because that's what happens. You have to collect the wine somewhere. There's a rodent floating on top of this cistern filled with what? Wine. It's not filled with water. For filled with water, then it has the same laws of floating. Here the question is what if it's filled with wine? Speak, me its doubt is now determined to be impure. Why? Because it's not water. It's wine. And wine does not have that same exception as water does. Oh, the But what about those people working in the wine press who were, as we learned earlier, they were Perushim. They were scholars who observed the laws of meticulous observance of purity. They want to know if they became impure because this rodent was floating in the water. Speak on to her, we're not sure. Ipnashi too much of because for their purposes this might be considered floating, whereas for the purpose of the Truma, it would not be considered floating, so you have one application for the Truma and one application for the workers. So here we have a different law for those working with it than for the Truma. Then for the bread. Zayin. So toher. In general, the laws of liquids, we, we have yet to touch the basic body of law, which talks about tumus ochlim, the laws of food and drink becoming impure. But what we do know is that the fact that liquid can make other things impure is a rabbinic decree. So mashkim achirim toher. When it comes to a doubt as to whether a liquid that became impure can convey impurity to something else, and we're not sure whether it touched it or not, then that is determined to be pure. The tumus asma, but for the liquid itself, tomey, it's considered impure, because that doesn't have that stretch. Kehzad, let's spell it out. Haya what if there was a staff? Beyond a walking staff was held in someone's hands. the mashkin me at the top or the tip of the staff, there is impure liquid. So clearly, there is impure liquid at the end of the staff. He threw the staff, and it went into a whole bin of pure breads. nogo nogo. What we're not sure of is whether the liquid at the tip of this rod actually touched the bread or didn't. It could have, and it could not have, because there is a doubt. I says they're pure. nogo whether the impure liquid. Touched this utensil? A leinogel or didn't touch? The same application would apply. The utensil is pure because we're not sure if it was touched or not. The same law applies if we're unsure whether this liquid touched other liquid or not. In all of the above scenarios, the common thread is this liquid has to make something else impure. That's a rabbinic application. So the second liquid is pure. If we're not talking about the second liquid, what if an impure person extended his hand or his foot within pure liquids? Or somebody cast a bread that's clearly impure? Amongst pure liquids, we're not sure if there was contact in the above scenarios or not. They are all considered impure because of doubt. Why? Because we're not talking about liquid making something else impure. We're talking about liquid becoming impure. All similar things. Next. A barrel filled with liquid. The impure person extended his hand into the airspace of the barrel. We're actually not sure whether this impure person touched the liquid or not. We know he extended his hand into the airspace. The liquid would be considered impure. Why? Because he touched the liquid. Maybe. It's a suffix, it's a doubt of
1: Torah
0: law. Interestingly enough, however, the barrel itself would maintain purity. Why? Because how would the barrel possibly have become impure? Because the impure person made the liquid impure, and the liquid made the barrel impure. Aha. She'en suffix the time of the doubt of liquid, making something else impure, does not make it impure, because of this doubt of a rabbinic application. So also, if liquid entered... Shanks may, which are clearly impure, may me If there was liquid that was uncertain whether it's pure or not, that entered into the airspace of the barrel, the barrel is pure, and the liquid within it is pure, shanks stop because the liquid in the barrel can only become impure through the barrel. And we're not sure if we touch the barrel or not. But what if the liquid that fell in, which was impure, mixed with the liquid in the barrel, I call all of the liquid is considered impure in doubt, the barrel itself is pure. The same applies if it falls into a oven, and the bread in the oven and the oven itself are pure. Now, today we have either linoleum, or tile, or marble, or carpets on the floor. Once upon a time, they had dirt on the floor. They had earth. So what did they used to do? They used to sprinkle water on the dirt to keep the dust down. Make sense? So now, situation in paragraph 9 is, somebody who sprinkles or pours water on the floor of his house, the problem is the water is impure. A Or, he poured it, he poured it, he sprinkled water on the ground just to keep the soil down, to keep the earth down, to keep the dust down. Okay, that's fine. But they were pure items sitting in the house. The question is, maybe the impure water was sprinkled directly on them or not. Being that this is a liquid, and there's a doubt, its doubt is pure. So these are all different examples of liquid conveying impurity. What if somebody sprinkled a mixture of pure and impure liquids in the house? And then clearly liquid was found on a bread of Kohen food. But we don't know whether this liquid was from the pure liquid or from the impure liquid. Oh, What if he took it? And he asked a question, can I eat this? He went to a rabbi, he says, rabbi, <coughs> what's the deal? Is this pure or not? It's pure, why? Because it's a doubtful situation of a liquid making something else impure. Maybe it was the impure liquid, maybe it was. Because any situation where liquid is conveying impurity to another substance, toher is considered pure. However, if he left this loaf of bread, until the water has been dried off, the water evaporated, or what have you. Now this becomes a case where it may or may not be impure. Because it's a situation of doubt. And it's private property, so it's considered me impure, as we will explain. But wait a minute, this came about through liquid. So we say, what liquid? Where liquid? There is no liquid, because the liquid is gone. There's no liquid right now. What we have is a solid object, which may or may not be impure. So therefore, the law changes because the liquid evaporated or was absorbed. Udalif 11, the next item we learned. And interestingly enough, the Rambam enumerated to begin with 12 situations. We are now, in paragraph 11, beginning to define situation number four. So we're really taking our time. We went into a lot of details in liquids. The next item is, we're not sure whether hands became impure or not. Whether we're talking about the hands themselves that may have become impure, that's called lehitame, or lehitame. Or we're talking about hands, conveying impurity to others. Or we're talking about hands, taking on purity, reverting to a situation of purity. Any doubt of the above, is considered pure, and that's item number four, I believe. Spell it out, for example, and here the Rambam brings a whole bunch of scenarios. If his hands were pure, which means that this person's hands were established as being pure hands. Well, the fun of and in front of this person they are shnay they are shnay kiqrim to make two loaves of bread and they're both impure pure hands how many hands two? impure breads how many breads too sopik nogah sopik le nogah we're not sure whether these two hands that are pure touch these two breads that are impure that's the doubt next scenario i show you up to mei, next scenario his hands were impure Well, the fun of and in front of him archnay kiqrim tell him i'm sorry his hands were impure the first scenario was his hands were pure and the breads were impure. Here his hands are impure and the breads are pure. Sopic, noga, sopik, like noga, did or did he not touch these breads. Next scenario. Aisha Yoda bachas to one of his hands were pure. The Tmea, and one of his hands were impure. One and one. Well, the been in front of him are snakey to hate two loaves that are both pure. Venoga bachaman, and he touched one of them, but we don't know which one. Again, about or the sopik, but meya noga sopik. I'm sorry. He continues. What's the doubt? Sophic with me another software, whether he touched the impure one or the pure one. Next scenario. I shall of his hands were pure. Well the father and there two loaves in front of him. Eh toy one is pure, one is impure. When not a bad man that he touched one of them, so come to Nogis of the Dorothy, maybe touch the impure one, maybe the pure one. Next scenario. I shall of the hat, one of his hands were pure, the ask one of his hands were impure. Well, the one kicker me in front of him is one impure bread, the kicker to one pure bread, but not a one thing to surely touch both of them. So he has one pure hand, one impure hand, one pure bread, one impure bread. So what's the deal? The deal is that the pure hand touched the impure bread? And vice versa, or was it the opposite? Maybe the impure hand touched the impure bread. In that case, nothing changed. Maybe the pure hand touched the pure bread. In that case, nothing changed. Or maybe the impure hand touched the pure bread. So the pure bread is now impure. And the pure bread touched the impure one. So now everything is impure. That's another doubt. The hands are as they were. ha you and the breads would be as they were, To so also, next scenario, is hands were impure, and he immersed them in nickel water, which we learned earlier you need to do for sacrifices, and he told them, to them, which you need to do for truma, and the doubt is whether the water, that he purified himself within them, he purified his hands within them, whether they are kosher, to purify hands or not <laughs> well, perhaps there isn't enough volume in this war, perhaps there is maybe there was something on his hand that was considered a an intervening substance we will yet learn in great detail about intervening substances in all of the above scenarios being there is a doubt having to do with hands and the whole hands application is a rabbinic decree they are all pure Yud-Base 12 the closing paragraph of this chapter again with hands what if one hand was impure Many days he has no idea whether it was the right hand or the left hand aim him you tell him he should not engage in any Artifacts of holiness With any artifacts of holiness Until he washes both of his hands Why? Because you're not sure Go wash both However What if he did What if he took one hand Unsure which one it was And touched pure items Before he washes his hands Being that this is a doubt About hands His pure items retain their purity And the rest of the list of twelve Will be defined in the upcoming chapter End of chapter 14